This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, and we're joined today on the podcast by two uh, leaders of the Fortune Society, Joanne Page, the President and CEO, and Stanley Richards, Executive Vice President. Thank you so much for coming. So much to talk about uh, around the topics of criminal justice, uh, incarceration, and its aftermath, um, probably more than we will get to, but why don't we start with a description of just what the Fortune Society is and, and some of the things you guys do. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for, for having us. Uh, Fortune Society is a 50-year-old organization, and our mission is uh, to support successful reentry and promote alternatives to incarceration, thus strengthening sort of the fabrics of our communities. We see people as uh, uh, give people an opportunity to build a new life when they walk through our doors. We see about 7,000 men and women each year. Uh, part of our programs is diversion through our Alternatives to Incarceration program. And then we have wraparound services, everything from meeting with a counselor, crisis intervention, job placement, job uh, soft skills, hard skills training, licensed substance abuse treatment, licensed mental health, housing, um, HIV AIDS, case management, family services, family reunification. It's really multiple points of entry uh, access to all of our services people are in need of and eligible for. And we make a lifetime commitment to people because we know change is not a linear process sometimes for folks, uh, but we make a lifetime commitment. And we have a dual mission. Half of it is services, and as Stan said, we see about 7,000 people a year. And half of it is advocacy. I envision us standing at the bottom of a waterfall picking up broken bodies and helping people rebuild their lives after experience in the criminal justice system. But part of what we do is try to work upstream and keep some of that damage from happening in the first place. Some of it is through alternatives to incarceration, because if we can keep people from going into prison and then being engaged in street and crime life until they age out about 30, we're saving a lot of lives and we're making communities safer. So it's funny, Mm -hmm. we also, We're a service organization for people coming out and for people with criminal justice history. We're an advocacy organization, and we share what we've learned in our program work. Uh, But we also are a community safety organization because if somebody comes home, they come home as an asset or a deficit to their community and their families, and it is a win-win situation when somebody comes home is able to build a constructive life in the community, be there as a family member. And more than half of our staff are formerly incarcerated as well, which means they do role modeling for the people who come out and show them that change is possible. Joanne, I think you and I spoke the first time maybe a dozen years ago. Yeah. I think it was about the attempt to change the minimum standards, if I recall correctly. But so much has happened there around this issue. I'm wondering, it might be hard to do, but... How do you assess the general state of the criminal justice conversation in the city? There's been some progress. I'm sure there's some obstacles you still see, but are we in a better place now? Would you say a much better place? How would you assess it? If you ask me about now versus 10 years ago or 12 years ago, I think we're in a much better place because we're in a much smaller place. So the number of people we're locking up and damaging in that way is much smaller. We've moved away from broken windows we've ramped down on stop and frisk. So the Hippocratic Oath is first do no damage. I think we're doing less damage and we're investing more in things that we know work. 
Uh, are we locking up too many people? Yes. Are we locking them up in conditions that bring out the worst in people and train them about how to live in a violent world? Yes. So if you ask, are we doing good? I would say no. If you ask, are we doing better? I would say yes. Just on the, um, I mean, I know we'll talk on, on both ends, but on the um, diversion prevention, explain a little bit how do people come into your programs on that front? You know, reentry, I think, maybe is a little more clear cut, or at least this is just in my mind, you know, how you sort of identify people and how they find you. But um, on diversion, or uh, prevention, preventative services, how does that happen? Let me jump in on sure. the alternative Correct to me. incarceration <laughs> piece, right? I'm sort of the mama of felony alternative to incarceration in New York yes. City. I was a legal aid attorney from 1980 to 1983 in Brooklyn. And it put a fire in my belly because I felt that when I did a good job defending somebody, I was pushing them through a revolving door and they would come back with a newer and better case. Uh, I went to what was then the Court Employment Project, that's now CASES, and developed their felony ATI and alternative to detention programs. And what we're dealing with in those programs, and we've built them enormously at Fortune, including one for people with mental illness, one for substance abuse, general population. What we do know is that jails and prisons teach people how to live in jails and prisons, and they foster the same criminogenic factors that everybody talks about they are a damage to the community. There are some people who pose enough risk to the community that you need to take them off the streets. Most of the people at Rikers Island and in state prisons are not that. And we take people out of their communities, out of their families, we damage them, and then we send them back to those neighborhoods. And what prisons are, are factories of pain and rage. They do enormous damage. So if there is a choice, if somebody can be supervised successfully in the community, it costs less, it damages people less, it gives them access to the tools that it takes to get jobs, go to school, get their drug treatment and mental health treatment, and it's a win-win on every front. And there have been study after study showing that New York City's alternative to incarceration programs do not increase crime, and they really displace people who are incarceration-bound. So we see three, 400 people a year who are on their way into prison a year or more, so most of them are going to prison, a few going to Rikers, and we graduate about 70% of them successfully. So if you can do that, why do you not want to do more of it? So we put a lot of our energy into both doing it and advocating for it. And would your contention be that for the folks that you say that really need to be removed, um, other than that small number of people, nobody should be going to a jail or a prison? I think that what we have now is jail or prison as our first response, and it should be our last response. So it should be what we do when we can't address the real risks that a person poses to the community in any other way. And then what we do when we lock people up should look radically different. It should be where people develop the skills to live constructively in the community, not where people have to learn how to survive in a very dangerous world. One of our staff who did time at Rikers said that at Rikers Island, you're either predator or prey. You do not want to put vulnerable young people, especially in a situation where they learn how to survive in that situation. Well, that goes to the heart of the, the Rikers debate going on. This It's not a debate, it's the Rikers mandate, which is obviously predicated on the idea that you have to reduce that population as much as possible mm -hmm. by 
keeping people out and keeping them, mm -hmm. if you can, and keeping them in for as, as short a period of time as possible. How, um, how confident, Stanley, are you feeling about the, the likelihood the city is going to succeed at, at closing Rikers on a reasonable timeline? And what, if any, do you see as sort of the big stumbling blocks? Well, I think, um, I think I'm feeling hopeful, first of all, about um, us being able to close Rikers. You know, when this announcement first happened, we were at, I think, a little bu a bit above 9,000. Uh, last numbers were down to 8,300. So I think we, we there's a lot of wind uh, on our sails, so to speak, about closing Rikers. I think this is the first time where we have the front end of the system, the police are part of the conversation and they're part of uh, making decisive action about who gets arrested and, and who doesn't at the front end, that's shrinking the front end. You have the city uh, committing to scale up on the diversion programs and supervised release so that we provide enough off-ramps for pe people uh, so that they don't have to be detained in, in, the, in the jails. I think the challenge is going to be the systemic change that we need to bring the numbers down. And I'm talking about bail reform. I'm talking about speedy trial and discovery. Uh, part of the um, what keeps people in, in the system so long is how long it takes to adjudicate a case. My last incarceration was in 86. I stayed on Rikers Island from 86 to 88 to get my case adjudicated. I ended up going upstate after that. Two and a half years I spent on Rikers. The average length of stay now is probably about a year, but that's a long time for somebody to be sitting down waiting to get their case adjudicated. So we really need to speed up that. We need to do bail reform so that, as Joanne said, uh, the, you're not incarcerated or detained while you're waiting to get your case adjudicated because you're poor. What's really interesting about the bail reform issue is that a supervised release program has been put into each borough and they are getting people who would have remained in detention released to supervised release. And their return rate is higher than the return rate for people who normally would have been released with nothing. That's right. So it's an abject lesson teaching us that the people who are being detained as a means of getting them to come to court do not need to be detained to get them to court. Uh, a wake-up call or reminder is sufficient to get them there if it's needed at all. What, what I learned as a defense attorney is that it was the people with the most serious cases who tended to come back. Hmm. And so I think that we're locking up way too many people in pretrial detention. But here's a challenge. When we had more people in jail, doing alternatives to incarceration had softer targets. The more you start peeling off the people who are easiest to peel off, the more you really need to work to get people out and to change the culture. And a place where I'm focused specifically is that something like 40% of the people on Rikers are mentally ill. They tend to spend twice as long in detention and get sentences twice as long as people who have equally serious charges and equally serious records. So if you throw the mental health issue into the equation, you double the length of time that people stay in. And in terms of vulnerability, if you want to damage people, Rikers is a great way to do it. If you want to maximize the damage, put in mentally ill people. Right. And then and throw them And you combine that with 40% mental, mental ill, percentage of people homeless, where do people go? Yeah. 
in a housing crisis. Part of what I think your uh, point about kind of it, it becoming a harder job as you get the numbers down because it's a, you get rid of sort of the low-hanging fruit, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. is that you move from the population that people in the reform conversation have become very comfortable about defending, which is people who are there on drug charges, folks there on broken windows, offenses. You get down to people who are charged with... Uh, more serious crimes, maybe violent crimes, crimes involving the sale of drugs, not just the possession or use of them. That's where I think that the City Hall was a little more hesitant about diving into closing Rikers. And that is where we're going. And, and that's where I think maybe the pre preparing the public for that conversation needs, needs more work. Right? That's going to be kind of difficult. But here's where it gets really interesting. There is what the data shows, and there is what people believe. And they often don't overlap at all. So... Talking more broadly, are people with mental illness of sufficient risk that you want to lock them up twice as long? There is no data to say that. If anything, the data runs in the reverse. Because what tends to happen, especially for people with mental illness and less serious crimes, is they end up staying in jail, get time served, get traumatized, get released, and then they're in the street with nothing. So we are not doing what the data says one does to make a community safer, right? Treating mental illness, yes. Um, Stan talked about housing. Right now, half the people, more than half the people released from state prison are being released to the shelter system. And not only to the shelter system, they're being released to three of the most dangerous shelters in the city. The large barrack-style shelters that are mm -hmm. drug-ridden, violence-ridden. We have people who come out of prison and go to a place like Bellevue and say, I feel safer sleeping under a bridge or take me back to prison. And they're right. They're safer sleeping under a bridge. Mm -hmm. So we're spending massive dollars. There have been a couple of studies about what it costs to keep somebody in one of those shelters. It's about 120 to $300 a day. We could do a lot better. And we could do it cheaper. And we could do it in a way that builds families and builds communities. So we, in criminal justice, it is never a question of do you spend. It's a question of do you spend on what works, both from a human perspective and from a crime-fighting perspective. We spend gobs of money on things that pull in the wrong direction on community safety. Yeah. <coughs> I did want to mention, um, Stanley, that you, you were on the... City Council Lippman Commission mm -hmm. that helped craft the a, a ten year plan mm -hmm. uh, to to close Rikers that the mayor sort of adopted or sort of co opted or <laughs> <laughs> sort of uh, endorsed. Um, and then you're also now working, representing the Fortune Society, working on a task force mm -hmm. that's helping the mayor and the city plan for for mm -hmm. that closure. So you're you're involved intimately, and yes. the Fortune Society is intimately in those plans as well as all the services that you provide. Um, and we obviously want to talk to you. Just hit on the topic, base you know of reentry, and mm -hmm. I want to get to that in a minute. But I had another question um, that sort of goes back to something Jared was asking about. You know, I've heard a, a little bit of interesting discussion around if folks want the NYPD to um, back off on stop and frisk, back off on broken windows policing, um, if people want more alternatives to incarceration, that there's a certain level of tolerance that has to be had for those who... Um, 
that doesn't work for right for for you know you said you graduate 70 percent um but maybe you know folks in that other 30 percent who uh fall down or or you know who struggle or people who uh go through alternative to incarceration programs um but commit you know some sort of violent crime while they're you know in one of those programs um you know i think we saw that with the with the murder of a police officer um is that you know how do you think about that that conversation that there has to be a little bit of time if you know if you want the the criminal justice system and the NYPD to ease off a little a lot um, is there does there need to be a little more tolerance for you know certain sort of scary incidents that people get alarmed by I don't think go yeah I, 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 so I think this is an opportunity for us to really look at the data right what we've seen over the years when I was in the system we had twenty two thousand people incarcerated in New York City jails, right? Crime was very high. And what we've seen is the data of the reverse of that, right? We see the number of people uh, on Rikers going down, 8,300, and we see crime going down. So so we know there's, there's it, 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 being smart on crime doesn't mean you don't pay attention to crime. It doesn't mean that, you know, communities aren't safer. There is a way in which we can operate, and we've been showing that over the years, that you could reduce the number of people who go through the jail system and, and incarceration and keep communities safe. But it is going to take being smart on community policing. It's going to be being smart on who has to be detained uh, in, in our jails and who could be safely supervised in the community. And we need to be smart on all aspects of it. So while I, it's, it, we need to have that be part of a conversation, we shouldn't set up that if somehow we reduce uh, the number of people who are incarcerated that our communities won't be safe. We have right now the safe communities, and we have numbers coming down. This is the the paradigm of if you reduce use of the criminal justice system, you then increase crime. Isn't true. I'm not really making a data argument. But what I'm saying is it's a story that people have in their heads, but you also want people looking at reality. So New York City, New York State are a success story in bringing down incarceration and bringing down crime. This whole broken windows idea that you address problems when they're small, I think is deeply wise, but you don't do it by incarceration. I think that what you want is you want neighborhoods safe, you want graffiti addressed, you want people who are sleeping in doorways because they're homeless addressed, but you don't do it by locking up people. I think that if you want an engine for crime and despair, Rikers is superb. If you want to damage somebody's earning capacity for the rest of their life, locking them up really does it. I think what we need to do is look at some of the underlying issues, spend less than we're currently spending, but do it in a way that we know yields results. That conversation will bleed or has bled into the conversation specifically in the neighborhood that the mayor has targeted for the New Bronx jail and, mm-hmm. and what has reported to be, and, and Ben and his team have done more on this than we have, but mm-hmm. some resistance there to launching a new correctional facility. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Is that, is that re- resistance uh, legitimate? 
is it is it based merely on uh, stereotypes and old fears? Is there is there any extent to which folks have a point that that neighborhood has enough of this kind of infrastructure and it should go somewhere else? What do you think? No, I think you know if a community raises concerns about a jail, I think those are their com their concerns and they're valid, right? And we need to have a conversation about their concerns and about the jail and and what does it mean to have a jail in the community. In the Lipman report, what we proposed is for the jails to be located next to the courthouses. So if you if you think about this, what we proposed is you you build the jail next to the courthouses, so we don't have to spend thirty million dollars a year, which what we spend right now, transporting people from Rikers Island to the courthouses. You build it next to the jails. You build it as a civic asset, uh, where the engagement in the jail it coincides with the engagement in the court and provides civic assets to the to the commu surrounding communities we then said take what is water waste management plants and and waste stations and you move that to Rikers Island and you develop the land in the communities when once you move that you develop those lands for supportive housing and affordable housing for the community the plan that the mayor is laying out now is it's it's it, for the most of all all the boroughs that is exactly what's going to happen except for the Bronx uh, but I think that's still an open conversation and the community is weighing in on that they have a vision of what they'd like to do for that that space and I think it's absolutely worth hearing what the community has to say and engaging in the conversation. And how can the needs of the community be met? I think that this is a community that feels that its needs have not been met over time. And I think that needs to be part of the conversation. There's a parallel for me, even though the facility is very different. We bought the shell of a building at 140th Street and Riverside in West Harlem. It had been abandoned for 20 years. It had crack vials crunching underfoot and drug dealing in the backyard. And the neighborhood was more scared of us than what they had. But we built trust in the community. And we got rid of the garbage between the buildings. We shoveled the ice off the streets, which hadn't been done in 20 years. And we made that corner safer and better for the neighborhood. And by the time we were ready to build in the empty lot, we had the community going to bat for us. So I think that a lot of this is about building trust in a community that has plenty of reason not to trust. You mentioned um, advocacy being a key, key piece of your work and some of the reforms um, that you've mentioned as well require state action. Um, and the mayor has often pointed to that as a very necessary piece of this whole picture and the picture of closing Rikers. Um, what do people need to know about <laughs> what needs to be done on the state level and what's standing in the way um, from your perspective? Let me throw something out that doesn't look like criminal justice, but it still ties in. Right now, if somebody's on public assistance, they get $215 a month for rent. Hmm. And that feeds into the homeless problem in devastating ways. Raising that allowance would make a huge difference in terms of people's ability to rent a room. Mm -hmm. to be able to survive and not be homeless. So there are things that are connected that are not necessarily directly criminal justice. We're paying attention to a couple of different things mm -hmm. that we think really matter. One is that the overlay between immigration and criminal justice is very, very ugly. If you see problems in the criminal justice system, it makes it look good when you look at the immigration system. Right now, if somebody has a misdemeanor charge and takes a misdemeanor plea, an a misdemeanor plea, 
The maximum incarceration they're subject to is 365 days. And even if they end up getting probation, because of that, if they are an immigrant, the immigration judge has no choice but to keep them in detention and to deport them. If they were only subject to 364 days, the judge would have discretion. And people who are pillars of the community, who are immigrants, who pick up a misdemeanor arrest, could stay in the country. So we are doing some real fighting about a bill we're calling One Day to Protect New Yorkers, because simply chipping one day off the maximum sentence gives discretion. We see devastating impact on people who are pillars of the community, who pick up a misdemeanor arrest, um, and their lives are ruined. And one of the reasons that we fought and fight so high against stop and frisk is that if you have a young person who is an immigrant and they get stopped and they're asked to turn out their pockets and there's marijuana in the pocket, their lives are ruined. That's just unacceptable. Stanley, you mentioned three, yeah. three topics, actually, that I think were on the state's docket for, for budget this year, speedy trial, bail reform, and discovery. Mm -hmm. They were all out there, and as far as I know, not, not, much, not much happened on them. They're uh, hovering. What, yeah. what, yeah, what did happen, and, and what are your hopes that will be revived? Well, I, I, think, I think we need to do a lot of work on, on bringing all sides together so that we have something that really operationally works. Uh, with respect to bail, speedy trial, and discovery, uh, the fact that it it was it it was close, um, I think you know we have to continue to push, um, but it's going to require the state to be bold on this. It's going to require uh, the governor to take lead, um, and we need to do it if we're really talking about uh, changing the criminal justice system, closing down Rikers. It's going to take bail reform speedy trial and discovery. Yeah, we won't we won't rope you into a political discussion, but I think, you know, that's obviously those are going to be pieces of the upcoming state state level elections. Yeah. Um, the let let's shift to to reentry uh, a little bit. Um, you obviously do a lot of your work there, so um, talk a little bit more about what needs to happen when people are leaving uh, a jail or a prison and and what you do in the, in those processes. So talk about housing because mm -hmm. we're rather obsessed with housing. If yeah. you don't have a safe place to lay your head, almost anything else is overwhelming. So the fact that we're releasing more than half of the people coming out of state prison to barrack style shelters where they're exposed to violence and drug use is just devastating. And the fact that we're paying more for that than for alternatives that work and that give people a future is a huge piece. Uh, so we're paying a lot of attention to that. We're working against quite a bit, mm. okay? The HUD definition of housing says that if you're coming out of institutionalization for more than 90 days, you're not homeless. Right. So people have to live under a bridge or go to a shelter before they're eligible for HUD-supported housing. And much of the supportive and transitional housing is HUD-supported. HUD is moving away from funding transitional housing. So many of the transitional housing programs that used to exist are just plain gone. Mm -hmm. As a city, we've lost SROs. We really have nothing for very low-income singles. And people end up in the shelters, or they end up in the street, or if they're on parole, they end up violating parole and end up back in state prison. Mm -hmm. uh, we are doing a lot of work 
about discrimination based on record in employment and in housing. So I think those are core issues. New York State has now put a bar in place that if you have state-funded money in the capital construction of your housing, you can't do blanket discrimination against people with records. New York City is not yet there, and New York City needs to move, certainly to be at least where New York State is, mm -hmm. around policies like that. Uh, we're looking at the kind of credit reports that landlords and employers use, and they're rife with error. They include things like arrests that never ended in convictions. They're often just wrong, and they're used to make the decisions. We're talking with some of the credit reporting organizations to see if what they do can get tightened up. We just settled a case with Target mm -hmm. around employment discrimination where we were the institutional plaintiff, which worked really well. We worked with Outen and Golden, which is a civil rights law firm in New York City, and we've sued Macy's, and we settled with Target. And these cases are, are built on, on what? What's the... So here's the theory. If what you do is do blanket discrimination or discrimination against people with records, you are discriminating against people of color disproportionately because of who we lock up. So what you end up with is a fair housing or a civil rights issue. So you're having a disproportionate impact, a disparate impact on people of color. So that is our argument. It's the disparate impact argument. And we're in federal court against a major Queens landlord who does blanket discrimination against people with records. We just settled with Target. They're going to come up with a model set of ways of screening people that meet their needs for the right kind of employees, but don't unfairly discriminate against people with records who could do perfectly well on the job. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of institutional things we've done. Mm -hmm. and um, Because the, the institutional uh, barriers Joanne talked about are on top of the everyday challenges of men and women coming home. I was I was talking to some folks yesterday, and I was saying, when someone comes home, be it five years, 10 years, 15 years, they leave that facility, they get on the bus, they have this plan in their head about all the things that they're gonna do so that they don't come back to prison. And all the while, they have no idea of all of the institutional and systemic barriers that they're going to face. Their stomach is sort of flipping, not quite sure, knowing how life is going to be. They have 24 hours to report to their parole officer after taking a seven-hour trip on a bus. They need to get to their parole officer so they don't get violated. Then once they see their parole officer, they have to go, if they have family, go and see their family. A week into being with their family, Family's pretty happy to see them home. They haven't seen them for a while. But the family can't afford them, right? Family, when are you going to get a job? And it's either spoken or it's unspoken. The way they look at you, the way they sort of say, how's your day going? Are you finding any luck on finding a job? So they got to find a job. They, they, they're trying to meet the mandates of their um, pro parole officer. They're trying to figure out, trying to deal with their recovery, if they're in recovery, right? Dealing with the challenges and temptations of relapse dealing with the sense of hope or hopelessness because every single day that someone went after they get released and they don't have a bit of success every single day diminishes that hope that they have when they walked out of that facility and so what we do at fortune is try to give them that hope when they walk through our doors give them the support so that they can build a life help them sort of uh, slow it down because 
your life is racing everything in your life is racing mind you these are all the things you want to do are things you've never done in your life because most often you cycled in and out of jail and that's what you are accustomed to and that's what you know how to do building this new life is all new and what we try to do is wrap around people get them into the services that they need and then support them through their journey but it's a pretty emotional journey when you get released from prison and you're talking about people trying to change their lives in multiple ways under enormous barriers yeah. what, what Stan said about hope for me is the pivot because I've been doing this for a long time mm -hmm. and I think hope is the variable that makes the difference between people just giving up and going back to what they know mm -hmm. and doing the hard struggle that it takes the courageous struggle that it takes to try to build a new life and I think the fact that more than half our staff and much of our leadership are formerly incarcerated really helps because when somebody walks through our door, they're likely to see somebody they did time with. Sometimes somebody was in worse trouble than they were in. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, what are you doing here? And the answer is, I work here. Mm -hmm. you know, or I run the place, right? Because mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. that variety. And it gives people the, the hope that something better is possible. That's right. So we're coming toward the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you about parole because that's been in the news uh, recently. A few mm -hmm. years ago, we reported on how uh, granting a parole had really decreased under Governor Cuomo. It's now ticked up, and we've had some cases where unpopular people have been paroled, people who had been convicted of murdering police officers and such. Mm -hmm. In terms of the reentry conversation, is, is parole a, a, a good thing? Indeterminate sentences. This was a topic that was brought up by the sentencing commissions under governors like Spitzer and Patterson. Mm -hmm. Whether it was better for planning to know you're going to be out in 15 years or you might be out in 10 to 25. Um, in terms of getting people ready for the next step, and then once they're out, whether a parole officer keeping tabs on you is a, is a good thing, um, helping you with your reentry, or whether that's just a chance to be violated back to prison. How does reentry and parole kind of overlap? Is that a good, potentially good partnership, or are they doomed to sort of uh, counteract each other? You know, I struggle with that question of the determinate versus indeterminate sentence, and I'm tilting toward determinate because I'm looking at the rates of parole release going down and situations like the situation with Herman Bell where the parole board did just what it should have done and where their jobs are at risk as a result of it. Uh, we have a relationship with parole that works really well. We're a primary resource of theirs. When we opened the castle, we told them we won't take your money because we don't want to live according to your rules, but we'll take your clients. But the condition is that we need a treatment-oriented parole officer who works with our house. Mm -hmm. We're on our second parole officer in 15 years. We have almost never, we almost never see a technical violation. And it's because we double-team. So I think something like that increases people's odds but when people move out of our house we've seen some really bad things happen we've seen people we had a couple and they moved to a different borough and the man was cuffed to the chair and told you can't live with another parolee either go into the shelter system or I'm locking you up and we had to intervene yeah. because they've been living together for years and it had been wonderful they just changed boroughs so I think it depends on who the parole officer is. I think there is a real push on the part of current leadership of docs mm -hmm. to try to increase people's chances. But when people are being released to the shelters, I don't think we give them a snowball's chance in hell. And then Joanne sits on the governor's reentry task force where they are looking at 
the parole conditions and parole guidelines to try to have those guidelines really align to good reentry supports. And really, and removing some of the ones that you violate just by breathing. Right. Like one of them is that you can't associate with other people with criminal justice history. Uh, where do you live? You live in a neighborhood that feeds the prisons. So mm -hmm. some of those could be removed. And I think if we could remove the technical violations or substantially decrease them, there would be a real improvement. I'm torn about the the question of determine it or not, yeah. because what we saw in the federal system was that when they put determinate sentence guidelines in, they ratcheted up the time that people Sentence. served. And I worry that we tend to make cases by story, and to the extent that there's a story of some awful crime of a particular category, we can then ratchet up the sentencing on that. And I remember the discussion I had about three strikes when it was being implemented, where I was talking on CNN, I think, with the father of a little girl who'd been killed, who was one of the advocates, and I said, if this is implemented, what you're going to be seeing is people with much, much less serious cases than that doing life. And in California, there were more people doing natural life on marijuana than murder, rape, and robbery combined when Three Strikes was in full operation. So I think we tend to demonize a group based on one horrific case and then set policy based on it. My last question, uh, and, and thank you for the time. Um, is is about sort of you know sort of back to this idea of the next steps around closing Rikers and one of the um, arguments uh, talk with Michael Jacobson who was on the on the commission former commissioner um, uh, correction commissioner and um, you know he talked about how the revamp facilities that already exist or any new facilities need to be totally modernized and changed and talking with Mark Peters the commissioner of Department of Investigation he said. Some of the worst stuff we've seen in terms of contraband and violence isn't even on Rikers. It's at the other facilities that already Growth exist that are now going to be rehabbed. Um, so what is your perspective on sort of there are going to be people, even if the population continues to go down, there are going to be people. What needs to happen with the facilities um, and the services they're in? So part of what's happening now is they're doing a study. And I hope the conclusion isn't rehab. Um, our sense, I'm on the design, I'm one of the co-chairs for the design committee, and we are uh, operating from the assumption that we're going to be starting from scratch. And we're de developing design principles that align the facility, what we call community-facing. So we want facilities that have access to light, facilities that have uh, provide movement, provide for separation and sort of um, de-escalation. Facilities that are really thoughtful in terms of if you have to detain someone, how do you detain them in a facility that you could bring in services, you could bring in the kind of resources that's needed to, to help that person sort of build a new life. So we're, we're hopeful that the study that comes out is called the CPSD study, that that study that comes out calls for uh, new facilities that allows for new design principles. And there are models, not necessarily the United States is where we'd start. That's but, right. you know, we are not the only country in the world. We are the one that is one of the worst 
in terms of how we do this. So I think the role models are out there. We can learn from them. I fear right now that that wonderful change we're making of taking adolescents out of the system and putting them in the youth system mm -hmm. is going to end up getting seriously damaged because the proposal is to take correction officers and transfer them wholesale with the young people. And that's like saying, let's take the culture of Rikers and transplant it to a new place. Yeah. You know, uh, I cannot imagine why one would want to do that. Temporarily. I think and then they'll be replaced by ECS officers and that the plan I think temporarily is unacceptable and I know what we do to try to create a culture of healing and growth in our residential buildings and it's hard if you start wrong you tend to stay wrong and the culture at Rikers is predator or prey and it hurts the correction officers and it hurts the people locked up. And if you simply take a shovel and transplant that entire culture into a new place, you have transplanted that culture into a new place. Well, I think we'll leave it there. We very much appreciate the time. Joanne Page and Stanley Richards from the Fortune Society, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A pleasure.